Today's message is called The Short Man with the Big Problem. Short Man with the Big Problem. So as Jesus was passing from old Jericho into new Jericho, and as he was walking through new Jericho, he's headed towards Bethany and then to Jerusalem for his final time. And while he's doing that, he is teaching the crowd. In Luke chapter 19, one of the most hated men in Jericho had heard about Jesus, and he desired to find out for himself. His name was Zacchaeus, and his problem was that he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Some of you remember your Sunday school song. Um, Another problem Zacchaeus had was that he had gotten rich off of being the chief tax collector. In those days, tax collectors had a certain amount of money they had to turn in to Roman officials for taxes. Anything they collected above their quota was theirs to keep as their salary. So they would shake people down for money so they could live a good life. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which meant that he supervised the regular tax collectors. So a percentage of what they collected rolled up to his pockets. The Bible says he was rich and Keeping in mind, as we discussed last week, New Jericho was the part of Jericho that had been built up by Herod the Great, which was the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth, the Herod that gave the command, all children, all male uh, babies born in Bethlehem under two years will die. That's the Herod that built up Jericho. So this is snazzy, it's rich, it's ritzy. Think River Oaks, okay? This is the really nice part of town, and this is where Zacchaeus lives, and this is the part of town Jesus is walking through. Zacchaeus was rich, and he was hated by the people of Jericho because of it. He was a symbol. The tax collectors were a symbol of the oppression of Rome. And he was considered a traitor by his people because he was Jewish and forcing these other Jews to pay taxes, which a lot of, a lot of which lined his own pockets. Yet he's heard about Jesus. And he was intrigued. Maybe he heard about Jesus from Matthew, a tax collector who turned a disciple. Zacchaeus wanted to hear Jesus. He wanted to see him, see what this, all the noise was about. So as Jesus is passing through Jericho, New Jericho, he is passing by the newer and nicer palaces of the city for rich people. But Zacchaeus was, had a problem. He was too short to see over the crowd. So he climbed a sycamore tree. You remember the story of the flannel graph you probably saw in Sunday school? He climbed a sycamore tree to get a better view of Jesus. And Jesus came up the road with his disciples and a large crowd. And everyone is clamoring and pushing and shoving because they want to get close to Jesus. They want to hear what Jesus is saying. They want to be able to touch Jesus. They, most of all, they wanted Jesus to see them. All of a sudden, Jesus halted the caravan of travelers. What's going on? What is Jesus doing? Who's he looking at? Jesus stopped at the tree. He looked up, and there was Zacchaeus holding on to the limbs. I try to imagine Zacchaeus in this moment. His heart must have been pounding because he just wanted to see Jesus, see what all the 
fuss was about, to, to maybe hear him speak and, and see if Jesus was as powerful and anointed as maybe he had heard. And so he's hanging out in the tree, looking, probably feeling a little foolish, but recognizing this is the only way he's ever going to see or hear Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops at the tree and looks up at Zacchaeus. The most amazing person in history to ever walk the face of the earth has just locked eyes with the most hated man in town. I'm sure there was a whole lot of tension in the air. What would Jesus say? Well, clearly he's going to read this guy's mail. He's going to tell him what a horrible human being he was. He was going to tell him what a despicable sinner he was. He was going to tell him he was not even worthy to get close to him. And yet, that wasn't at all what Jesus said to him. Luke 19.5, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. In other words, stay, or in some translations, abide, is the same word Paul uses later in Ephesians 3.17 when he wrote, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ to dwell, to stay, to abide in your hearts by faith. And this word that we translate as dwell or stay or abide literally means to be comfortable. I like that idea. That Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to relax. He wants to be comfortable with us. It's such a different mental picture than often we have of Jesus. We should enjoy his presence but that's the, kind, that's the kind of intimacy he wants, that he can enjoy our presence, that we can enjoy each other's presence, that we can relax and be comfortable, that he can be comfortable enough to speak truth to us and we're willing to hear it and to listen. But this short man, Zacchaeus, had a really big problem. Zacchaeus was thrilled. But when the crowd saw Jesus pay attention to this scoundrel, they grumbled and they complained. They began to murmur among themselves. Now, Zacchaeus' name means pure. But to be a chief tax collector meant you weren't living up to your name. They didn't see any purity of heart in this guy. They didn't feel like he was worthy of Jesus' time. And this has to remind the disciples of a previous time when Jesus did this. When Jesus first began calling his disciples to follow him, he happened upon a hated young man who was also a tax collector for Rome. When Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew threw a banquet in Jesus' honor where he invited a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners to meet Jesus. And when the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at the disciples, Jesus replied, those who are healthy don't need to see a doctor, but those who are sick. I haven't come, come to call the righteous people, but to call sinners to repentance. We need to never forget that that is still true. Sometimes Christians get upset when a deplorable or decadent sinner gets saved. 
We see stories about Justin Bieber accepting Christ, Kanye West accepting Christ, uh, Shia LaBeouf accepting Christ, and we 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 like what? Those people can't be a Christian. We think that somehow that when notorious sinners get saved, it somehow diminishes God's grace. It somehow subtracts his ability to forgive us. You know, we're pretty righteous people, and so we only need a little bit of forgiveness, but they need a whole lot of forgiveness. And if God has to spend all of his forgiveness on them, he's got none left for us. Well, that's not the way that works at all. If anything, these people who accept Christ that are notorious sinners, it just demonstrates the depth of God's grace and his reputation that he is a seeking God. He has come to save the lost. His desire is to bring sinners to repentance. God is still saving people that we think are beyond his saving grace. And we should be incredibly glad for that. Zacchaeus stood face to face with Jesus. He made a surprising and audacious claim that definitely would have surprised the crowd. It's Luke 19, 8. Zacchaeus said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, the law, the Torah, only commanded him to restore it twofold. He was willing to restore it fourfold. Suddenly, the crowd had to like this guy. All right, man, let's show me the money. You want to make a claim like that in front of Jesus, we're going to hold you to it. He made a public proclamation that day that money was not as important as salvation. And boy, We all need to remember that. Money is not as important as salvation. If you win the lottery this week, you make sure you take care of the Lord's house. (laughs) We got an AC name, we got an AC unit that we need to replace, and we'll gladly put your name on a plaque and stick it right on that. That'll be the that'll be your name. It'll be the memorial AC unit. Money isn't important as your salvation. The beauty of scriptures, we can actually look back at a, a few, a couple sermons ago regarding the rich young ruler, okay? It's the same situation. It's the same issue, money. It's the same heart problem, but it's a completely different response. The rich young ruler was sad because he was very rich, and he didn't want to give away his, his possessions. He wasn't willing to sacrifice his riches, He enjoyed the lifestyle that he had, and he wasn't willing to give that up to accept Christ. Zacchaeus is like, I'll give it away. If I've defrauded people, I'll restore it. I'll give fourfold what I have taken. He was basically taking a vow of poverty and saying, I will not allow money to be my God anymore. Zacchaeus left the tree joyfully as he was ready and willing to restore any ill-gotten gain. So what was Jesus' response to Zacchaeus' statement? It's in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. My grandfather used to say, we spend too much time keeping the saints saved instead of going out and doing what God has commanded us to do, to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus' response that his uh, demonstrated that his heart was sincere, that he made a public proclamation that he was going to do this. He was going to restore anything that he had gotten through ill-gotten gain. And the one thing that could have corrupted his heart, he said no longer had a hold on him. Money is just money. It's a tool. It's not a God. This encounter with Zacchaeus is what set up a teachable moment. In Luke 19, the rest of Luke 19, Jesus told the parable of the ten minas. It's very similar to Matthew 25's parable of the talents. So we're actually going to move to Matthew 25 and look at that parable. Jesus told these parables, these two stories, on two different occasions to two different crowds with a few differences, the ten minas versus the five talents. But it's essentially the same story. And it's the same point that he's making. So we're going to look at the Matthew 25 story and the parable of the talents, which is more, it seems to be more familiar to most people. And Jesus used parables to demonstrate powerful pictures about God and about his kingdom. It was the easiest way to help someone understand something, to tell them a story. And so when he told parables, he was sharing life-changing truth to his disciples and to anyone who was willing to listen. The parable of the talents is a story that emphasizes faithfulness. It prepares us for that moment when God will ask us, what did you do with what you were given? Through this parable, Jesus shared that our lives won't be judged by our fame, by our social importance, by our accomplishments, our bank account balance, or anything other than our faithfulness. This parable should confront and disturb us to look deep into our hearts and answer that question, am I being faithful with what God has given me? We can easily waste our time and our opportunities and our God-given resources if we don't use wisdom. And that's what this parable is all about. Jesus is forcing some introspection. He wants you to seriously examine your heart first so that when he does it at the final judgment, he sees the generous heart of Zacchaeus and not the corrupt heart of the rich young ruler. So let's look at Matthew 25. We're looking at verses 14 through 30. We're going to go ahead and read the whole parable and then we'll break it down. For what Jesus is speaking, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had 
received the five talents, came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, he also who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's break down first what a talent is. I'm going to throw some numbers at you. So if you're not numerically inclined, this might be a little overwhelming. But just stick with me for a moment. Most commentators say that one talent is the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages. Okay, 20 years worth of wages. So we'll put it in today's economy. The minimum wage, at least in Texas, is $7.25 an hour. If you worked 40 hours a week, then you would make $290 in that week. Now, if you continue to work minimum wage all year long, you would make a little over $15,000 in a year making minimum wage. Since a talent is worth 20 years' worth of laborers' wages, that would make a a talent worth $301,000 in today's economy. So the one servant who got one talent got $301,000 given to him and expected to invest that. The servant who got two talents got $603,000 expected to invest. And the person that was invested in with five talents got $1.5 million in today's economy. So the wealthy landowner gave these to his servants and left on a journey. The first thing we notice in this story is that talents were entrusted to each according to their ability. Talents were entrusted to each according to their ability. This parable does not emphasize equality. It emphasizes fidelity. It emphasizes faithfulness. The one and two talent servants could complain all day long they weren't given $1.5 million. But the complaining doesn't change the facts. 
they were entrusted with something and they were expected to steward it wisely. There are times when we look at someone who is gifted where we are not and it can create jealousy in us. And I'll give you an example. I've been at the home of Max and Carolyn Williams on a couple occasions and one of my favorite things to do is walk around their dining room because in their dining room lining the walls are paintings that their daughter, Robin, has completed and hang on their wall. And if you ever see any of these paintings, you'll be blown away. I mean, the attention to detail is unreal. These paintings are so good, they look like photographs. That's how incredibly detailed they are. Each brushstroke is perfectly placed. The shadows, the colors, and the detail show that it's the work of someone who's incredibly gifted. And Robin, if you watch this, and somebody from this church buys a painting, I expect a little compensation. <laughs> I'm giving you really good credibility here. You should check it out. Robin Williamson, okay? If you asked me to paint a portrait, it would be a disaster, okay? God did not give me the gift of painting. I excel in the art genre of stick figures. When I see art, when I see Robin's paintings, when I go to the museum and I see these sculptures and pottery and paintings that I know I can't do, uh, God has not gifted me with that, then I could easily allow jealousy to arise in my heart because God denied me that gift that he freely gave to someone else. I could shake my fist at the sky and say, God, it's not fair that you gave somebody else this incredible gift and you didn't give it to me too. And so we can look at the talents of others, what other people have, whether that be painting or poetry, woodworking, musical ability, interior decorating, songwriting, or a host of other things, and we can let our hearts be filled with jealousy that we don't have something that somebody else has. But can that person that you're jealous over do what you do? Do they have the talents that you have? Are, are, aren't you gifted in different ways than they are? You see, we are unequal in the natural gifts that God has given us. We're unequal in the opportunities that are presented to us. We're unequal in the advantages that we might have over others. What if Monet's parents were so poor they couldn't afford to buy him paint supplies? The point of this parable points out what human existence demonstrates and what my father repeated to me ad nauseum, life isn't fair. He said that all the time, life isn't fair. And so I would reply as a, a student of the word, isn't it our job to make life more fair? And he would say, well, let me know how that works out for you if you want to spend all your time doing that. I'm just telling you, life isn't fair. Deal with it. Some people have advantages over others. Some people have giftings, better or different than others. It's not about what you have or don't have. It's what you do with what you have. We might not have an equality of talents, but every one of us has an equal opportunity and expectation from God to be faithful with what we've been given. 
we will be judged and rewarded based on the kinds of stewards we have been with what he gave us. The second thing we see in this parable, this is incredibly important. We need to squash the idea that God is not good. We need to squash that idea that God is not good. The man with the one talent buried it because he thought his master was evil and he didn't want to risk upsetting his master. He failed to trust that his master would reward his faithfulness. This concept is as old as the Garden of Eden itself. The first thing Satan tried to do Uh, to Adam and Eve was to convince them that God was withholding something good from them. And if God didn't want them to have something good, wouldn't that make God not good as well? We have to repeatedly silence that voice that tells us if God was truly good, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. If God was truly good, you wouldn't have cancer. If God was truly good, you wouldn't have had to file bankruptcy. If God was truly good, your spouse wouldn't have left you. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that God is a rewarder of those who seek and pursue Him. If we're faithfully pursuing Him, He will faithfully reward us because God is good. I came across a song. We haven't sung it here before. But it's a a song that helps us understand this. And this is the lyrics. It says, I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. And all my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. The chorus says, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. The second verse says, I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. In my darkest night, you were closer. You were close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. Oh, I have lived in the goodness of God. All your life, he's been faithful. All your life, he has been good. And though evil may have happened to you, God knows how to bring goodness from painful situations. We read this parable, and we wonder why the master was so hard on the servant that didn't increase his money. There's a couple reasons. I'll give you four He punished the man because, first of all, he didn't share his master's interest in the kingdom. He wasn't concerned with what his master was interested in. Number two, he didn't trust his master's intentions. Number three, his only concern was for himself. And number four, he did nothing to use what he had been given. He was faithless when his master expected him to be faithful. Because this servant lacked the understanding that his master was good, he lacked the faith and courage to take a risk. He decided to be cautious. He decided to play it safe. If you never step out in faith, then you're not trusting that God has got you. 
He's not expecting you to do the impossible. That's his territory. He's just expecting you to be obedient. One of the things, the first conversations that I had with Don and Deborah Simmons, we were at Swinging Door Barbecue. We sat down and Don shared with me his vision. The vision that God had birthed in his heart to buy a large piece of property and build houses and and cabins on this property, to have a lake, to have a place where pastors and missionaries and uh, workers of the gospel can come and relax and be just enjoy themselves and, and to have a retreat and for them not to pay anything for it. And I said, Don, that's a huge vision, brother. I mean, I can understand if you want to do it, but then people would pay. But his heart was, no, I don't want them to pay. I want them to have a retreat. I want them to come and be able to just unplug and relax and be fed and have a time where they, the Spirit can speak to them and, be, and minister to them. And that's a vision way bigger than Don could complete. But it didn't stop him from dreaming. He had that vision in his heart, and he knew that it was going to take God to get it to come to pass. This is what happens. If we never trust God's intentions, if we never trust that God is good, we'll never step out in faith, and we'll never do anything that God wants us to do. He wants to give us a dream bigger than we could ever accomplish on our own. When you do what you can... In obedience to God, when you do what you can, he will do what you can't. When you do what you can, when you step out in faith and you do the part you can do, he'll do the part that you can't do. God told Abraham to walk all over the land and every place his foot touched would be the possession of his descendants. What if Abraham decided to stay close to home? What if Abraham just decided, I'm just going to walk a mile in each direction? God wanted Abraham to dream big and not limit his vision of what God can do. So when God told Abraham to, and every place your footsteps will be your possession, man, you better believe that guy got to walk in. He put on his pedometer and was like, we are going to travel around this place, baby. Put on your walking shoes. We are going for a long hike. Now, there may be people living there now, but they ain't going to be living there forever. God promised me this land. In response, if you remember the story of Moses when he's at the burning bush, and God told Moses to do something absolutely impossible for a man with no army to do. Liberate Israel from Egypt. And Moses knew he couldn't do it. What was he going to do? Take all the sheep with him as an army? Just duct tape a sword to each sheep or something? Or put it on their back and just teach them how to You just run straight out? I mean, Moses has got to be thinking, this is ridiculous. I have no army. I have no one who will follow me. How do I even do this? And Moses knew that he couldn't do it. So God reassured him that he would be with him. So Moses came up with every excuse possible. I'm not one of their leaders, so what if they won't listen to me? I don't even know your name, so how will they believe me? I can't speak well, so how will they take me seriously? 
And in response to, in response to Moses' objections, God asked one simple question. What do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? What has God already given you that he expects you to use for his glory? Well, in Moses' hand was a staff. So when Moses threw down his staff, it became a serpent, something that Moses had never seen before. And God promised that he would be with him and he would see even greater wonders than these if he was obedient. Moses obeyed God. He was faithful to God's command. He led Israel out of Egypt, and he led them up to the promised land. We can be tempted to think that maybe our talent is so small that it doesn't matter. Maybe the only talent you have is floral arranging. You can still use that for the glory of God. Maybe your talent is this or that. Maybe you can balance a checkbook like nobody's business. There's, there's a way to use your talent for God's glory. And when we look at a talent and we think that it's small and we feel like it doesn't have any contribution to the kingdom, we end up neglecting opportunities to use that talent. When we do this, we become the one-talent man. We stop trusting in God's goodness, and we think of him instead as cruel and evil, especially when we see these people who have many talents. We didn't create the talent. We didn't create the resources on our own, so all he's asking us to do is be faithful and to trust him with what he's entrusted with us, to us. When we're faithful with what God has entrusted to us, we receive the Lord's praise and reward. When we stand before him on that day, all of us long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. He is looking for your faithfulness with what you've been given. I'll ask our worship team to come up. Would you please stand with us this morning if you can? Zacchaeus was a short man with the big problem. He was hated by the crowd that loved Jesus. He had been a crook and a cheat to get rich. But having a personal encounter with Jesus transformed him. And this, his desire shifted from being rich to being faithful. This story about Zacchaeus is, how, is, is a story about how a sinner becomes a son. Let's be like Zacchaeus. Let's be quick to recognize that we need Jesus if we're going to be found faithful by the Father. We need to make sure that we don't become that one-talent servant. We should always be careful to remember the goodness of God and how he has been faithful to us. If we don't use our talents, we'll lose them. If we bury and hide our gifts away, we demonstrate that we're not trusting God.
God to use the little we have to make it matter in his kingdom. Even if we're unfaithful in this area, what should comfort us today is that God is always reaching out to us. His love never fails us. It never forsakes us. It never gives up on us. His love reaches down into the depths of our sins and our uncleanness and our filth. And he lifts us out of that pit. His love does for us what we cannot and could not do for ourselves. His love proves the faithfulness and the goodness of God. So the question for you this week is, what do you have in your hand? And will you be faithful with it?